Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to a bright and breezy Planet Earth podcast, bringing you news from the natural world. And what could be more natural than Wick and Fen Nature Reserve in Cambridgeshire in the east of England? Considered one of Europe's most important wetlands, it's home to more than 8,000 species of plants, birds and dragonflies. And you can find out exactly which species we're interested in in just a moment. Also on today's podcast, a visit to the Oxford Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit. And we'll be heading to northern Sweden for a closer look at snow. Crust is about two centimetres thick in places. Looks like there might have been two separate melt events. Because the crust looks like it's got two parts to it. A bit like a sandwich. And we'll hear more from Mel Sandell a little later on in the podcast. Meadows, sedge and reed beds. Quite an extraordinary area of land. You can walk around the nature reserve on a raised boardwalk that takes you past windmills and some bird hides. And birds, or one bird in particular, is the reason I am here today. It's the cuckoo. And I'm here to meet Nick Davis. He's a professor of behavioural ecology at the University of Cambridge and he's currently studying the cuckoo here at Wiccan Fen. Nick, we're beside some reeds which are taller than both of us but we're not here for the cuckoos or are we? Well we are here to look for cuckoos but the way to find cuckoos on Wiccan Fen is to go looking with a stick for reed warblers nests because here on the fen reed warbler is the host that the cuckoo targets. And right here in the reeds, if I just part them with this stick, we can see a reed warbler nest, which is a beautiful cup. That's tiny. It sort of would fit in the palm of my hand. It would, and it's suspended between four new reeds, and it keeps the reed warbler eggs nice and snug, even on a strong, windy day like this. Oh, there the reeds were blowing towards it. But it looks like it's got white, wispy bits. Yes. in amongst its nest. So it's built from the old seed heads from last year's reeds, but the female who builds the nest anchors the nest to the reed stems using spider silk. So it's, it's just a work of art. If I just tilt the nest slightly, you can see that it contains four reed warbler eggs. So, so far, this nest has avoided the attention of the cuckoo. And I think what we better do now is cover the reeds back and leave so the female can come and sit on the clutch. Well, as we walk to an area away from the reed warbler. How many nests have you been looking at so far? And and in terms of how many cuckoo's eggs have you found so far as well, more importantly? Well, so far it's early in the season and we've found about 60 reed warblers nests. Uh, Most of those have now got eggs, but we haven't found a single cuckoo egg. So it's a little bit worrying. That's not normal then? Well, cuckoo's have declined. I started work here in 1985, and on average in the old days, between 10 and 20% of reed warblers' nests got cuckooed. And in recent years, only about two in every hundred nests get parasitised. And I'm really worried that we've not yet found a single cuckoo egg this year. Have you any ideas as to why there has been this decline in numbers? We don't know why cuckoos are declining, no. One possibility is that it's due to global changes. So spring's becoming earlier now. And one possibility is that the cuckoo's now arriving at, and mistiming its, its breeding season, missing perhaps the, the food abundance. Cuckoos are very keen on hairy caterpillars. 
So either the timing of the emergence of hairy caterpillars or even the number of hairy caterpillars available to the cuckoos might be one factor. Another factor which is possible is that cuckoos go to Africa south of the Sahara and there's certainly increasing droughts and scarcity of food supply there for the birds in winter quarters and that might actually be the main problem. You're specifically interested in the behaviour of cuckoos and this seems to be an area that is bringing up more and more new insights every year it seems. It is. It's been known for a very long time that one of the tricks the cuckoo uses is to lay an egg which mimics the host egg. In other words, an egg which looks just like the host egg. Now, there are several subspecies or host races of cuckoos in Europe. The ones that we find here on Wiccan Fen are specific to reed warbler hosts and they're genetically programmed to lay a green egg which matches the green egg of the reed warbler. Another strain in Britain in the north lives in moorland and they target meadow pipits. Meadow pipits lay brown eggs and the strain of cuckoos which specialise on meadow pipits also lay brown eggs matching their host. Now it's very well known that this egg matching is really important to fool the hosts and we've shown that by experiment. If you put a model egg of a different colour into a host nest they'll throw them out. Another form of trickery occurs at the chick stage. When the cuckoo chick hatches out, it throws out of the nest all the host eggs, so it's raised on its own. The ultimate only child brat, really. It's the ultimate brat, (laughs) yes. And here it employs the most wonderful vocal trick. It begs at a fantastic rate, which sounds just like a whole brood of hungry host young. So although when the hosts come back to the nest... They see this big, ugly chick, which looks different from their own. The fact that it sounds so convincing, like a whole brood of their own hungry chicks, spurs them on to feed this monster. Now, more recently, I read about research that involved hawks as well, and I would never have put cuckoos and hawks in the same sentence. (laughs) That's right. The tricks I've described so far occur at the egg stage and at the chick stage. And we wondered whether the hosts have got a defence early on to try and thwart the cuckoo from laying in the first place. What we discovered is that if reed warblers see a cuckoo at their nest, they're much more likely to throw out an egg. And we showed that by experiment by presenting them with a stuffed adult cuckoo or a model wooden cuckoo we made out of balsa wood. And if they saw this model close to their nest, they became much more fussy. They were alerted, if you like, to the possibility of parasitism. So the cuckoo's done two things in response to this fussiness by the hosts. One trick is actually to mimic hawks. Now, not all cuckoos are parasitic. There's about 150 species of cuckoos in the world, and only half of them are cheats. And we've done a survey, and it's it's very clear that amongst the cheating cuckoos, many of them mimic hawks by having underpart barring and grey plumage and hawk-like behaviour too with a dashing flight. In fact I've heard many small birds on Wiccanfen give alarm calls when a cuckoo flies past just as they would to a hawk. The way we think the cuckoo benefits from looking like a hawk is that the host would then be reluctant to approach this cuckoo or hawk-like object close to their nest. So the cuckoo then has time to slip in and lay without being detected, without being approached too closely. Now to test whether this cuckoo barring really is the key we presented our model cuckoos either with barred underparts or with unbarred underparts 
And what we showed that is if the model had barred underparts, the reed warbler hosts were much more frightened of it, much more reluctant to approach closely. So actually, the big problem now for the host is that if, if the cuckoos are so secretive, how can they gauge whether they're likely to be in, within a cuckoo area and so likely to be targeted as a host? Well, instead of just relying on their own perception of cuckoo activity, what we've discovered is that the reed warblers also listen out for their neighbours' responses to cuckoos. So it's a bit like a neighbourhood watch system. <laughs> Whenever a reed warbler sees a cuckoo in its territory, it mobs with a rasping sound, a sort of skrrr, call. And as soon as this rasping call takes place, all the neighbours will quickly come over to see what's going on. And you can see the reeds twitching as the neighbours fly often 20, 30 metres to come and have a look at the source of all this alarming. Well, we've shown by experiment that if they see neighbours mobbing a cuckoo, then they up their defences at their own nests. So the cuckoo's really got a double reason for being secretive. Professor Nick Davis, thank you very much indeed. And on this gloriously sunny day at Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire, we're going to move now to something a little cooler, snow. It's one of the world's most important natural resources, as one in six people on our planet rely on melting snow and glaciers for their water supply. Mel Sandells from the National Centre for Earth Observation has been studying snow for the past 10 years and she's working to understand the properties of snow with the aim of eventually being able to measure the mass of snow from satellites. As you can imagine, Mel's work takes her to some very cold and isolated places such as the far north of Sweden from where she sent us back this latest audio diary. So we've arrived in Arbisco. And the landscape is just spectacular. There are huge mountains and U-shaped valleys caused by glaciers moving through them. We've come down to the lake, and the lake is massive. It's about 12 kilometres long. The snow's got a melt-freeze crust on it, where the sunlight's caused the snow surface to melt a little bit, and then it's refrozen as the temperature gets colder. This has formed a, an ice crust, you might be able to hear a tinkle as I break through it. Crust is ooh, about two centimetres thick in places. Well, it looks like there might have been two separate melt events because the crust looks like it's got two parts to it, a bit like a sandwich. So we'll be using an instrument called a spectroradiometer whilst on this field trip. A spectroradiometer measures reflectance of sunlight from the snow surface at all different frequencies. And we can use this information to tell us how large the snow crystals are. Let me introduce you to Mark Richardson from the University of Reading, who's come out to measure some of the snow properties. So, Mark, could you tell me what you're doing? What I'm hoping to do is every two to three days I'm going to dig a snow pit which is where you just dig down to the ground clear about a metre square and then shave off a front face so you've got a flat sort of side picture of the snow pack and then you measure how deep it is and then you go down the snow pack and you take measurements of the temperature the grain size and the density the idea is that if we do some very close to each other then we'll be approximately measuring the same sort of snow and we'll then have an idea of how it changes with time how will this information help us? We've been running computer simulations about how the snowpack changes and 
eventually what we want to do is to be able to use a satellite to look anywhere on the world and see how thick the snow is there. But unfortunately, it gives us uh, a sort of a mixed picture. It picks up something from how big the grains are and something from how much snow there is. And if we can use computer simulations to work out how the grain size changes, then we can get the depth of the snow out from the satellites. Okay. At least that's the plan. We were hoping to test the spectra radiometer today to get it out of its box and assemble it all and make sure it's all working as we expect. However, it's in a locked box and we're not quite sure who's got the key. We're waiting for the rest of the team to come down from the field site to see if they've got the key. And if they haven't, then we'll just have to break the lock. So now it's time for a long slog back up to the top of the hill where the research station is based. So I'm just sitting in the office at the moment. We're planning on doing a snow survey today where we measure the snow surface reflectance and snow depth over a 600 metre by 600 metre area taking measurements of the surface reflectance every 100 metres and we will make measurements of the snow grain size every 200 metres. Ultimately what we want to be able to do is to measure global snow mass using microwave satellites. It's Thursday today, it's a beautiful sunny day. There are a few clouds in the sky, but only small ones, so it's a perfect day to do spectro-radiometer measurements of the snow. There's a lot of variability in the snow that we're seeing. As I walk through the snow, you might be able to hear the differences in snow structure. So, we're standing in fresh snow, moving on to an ice crust. And there's a lot of harder wind-packed snow. And further up ahead, there's a structure called, in the snow called sastrugi. And these are basically wave-like patterns in the snow, a bit like sand dunes. The question we're trying to ask is, given all this variability at the scale of a satellite footprint, how does this affect the measurements? Well, for me, the fieldwork has now finished. And as I'm looking around, I'm wondering if I'll get the opportunity to come back here again. It's certainly a stunning place to be. All that remains now is for me to strap on my skis and begin the long journey home. Mel Sandels from the National Centre for Earth Observation. And you can see some pictures of Mel's work in Sweden, as well as our location here at Wiccan Fen, on our Facebook page. Just search for Planet Earth online. And you're listening to the Planet Earth podcast. In the late 1940s, a chemist called Willard Livy, who'd worked on uranium during the Manhattan Project, developed a method of dating material with a biological origin. He realised that all living things contained a constant ratio of two types of carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-14. And today, radiocarbon dating is an extremely accurate and useful way to date an archaeological find that contains any previously living material. Dr Tom Hyam is Deputy Director of the Oxford Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit. I joined him inside the accelerator unit to find out how it works. This machine, its job 
is basically to take tiny amounts of graphite, which contain the carbon, and therefore the carbon-14, that derive from the archaeological bone or, or charcoal or whatever it happens to be, and to separate from all of the other interfering particles just the carbon-14. So this is rather like a, a large sieve, and the, the way it does that is by particle acceleration, by beam-bending the particles so that they can be separated by magnetic forces... The problem that we have, though, is that a tiny amount of that carbon is carbon-14. One particle in a billion, billion is carbon-14. So that's why we need such a large machine to be able to separate all of the interfering particles that aren't carbon-14 from carbon-14. So if you had a bone, for example, that you wanted to analyse, where would it actually go? Basically, what you're seeing here is the very end of the process. Right, well, let's go further into the noisy machinery... And now actually you can see the bends of this big cylinder here. The first stage is to take the bone, to take about half a teaspoon of powder from the bone and to extract the collagen from that bone. Stage two is then to combust the collagen, purify the gas and convert the carbon dioxide into graphite. And then the graphite is then loaded into one of those small aluminium holders there. This almost looks like a a gun canister with bullets. Yeah. And then you see this little hole on the top. It's about a a millimetre in circumference. That contains the graphite from the bone. And it's pressed very firmly onto the top of this target. And then it's put into this large wheel of samples here, which number about 50 or 60. And once the accelerator is loaded with this wheel, a cesium beam is projected onto the surface of the graphite. And that process, called sputtering, gives charge to the particles And that is really, really important, because if we don't give the particles a charge, that means we can't bend them, we can't move their trajectory and separate the particles from other particles of a different mass. Let's go into the quieter area now. This is the control room where the measurements are monitored and the machine is is started, stopped, and also where the uh, dates are calculated. In the old days, it used to take a day or so to calculate a batch of radiocarbon dates. But now, of course, we have computers that do it in the space of a blink of an eye. How do you actually tell the age of something from the amount of radioactive carbon in it? The dating process is built around the half-life of radiocarbon. The half-life simply means the amount of time it takes for half of the radioactive carbon that is present per gram of material in a living organism to decay after death and disappear. So... We know from Libby's work that the half-life of radiocarbon is about 5,500 years. That means that every 5,500 years, the amount of radiocarbon declines by half. So after 10 half-lives, you're back to around 55,000 years, and then there should be no more carbon-14 left. So that marks the limit of the dating technique. The great thing about radiocarbon dating is that carbon is ubiquitous in the biosphere, so there are many different types of material that we could date, whether they be bones, charcoal, wood to things like mollusks and fish, fish bones, pollen. Since the 1950s, there's been a doubling of the amount of radiocarbon in the world because of the nuclear testing that took place in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. So if we measure something that's modern, modern being since 1950, we can get a very high level of radioactive carbon that we know, therefore, must equate with a date in the modern period. Modern particle accelerators and pre-treating samples to remove contaminants have improved the accuracy of radiocarbon dating. In some cases, artefacts need to be retested, and Tom's unit helped produce recent research which suggested that Neanderthals probably died out 10,000 years earlier than previously thought. Unfortunately, 
in many cases, when we do this work, we find that the previous states are underestimating the real age. So there's a huge amount of work to be done still in applying these new techniques to find the real chronological picture. So you could actually put a lot of noses out of joint. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of people with a lot of vested interests in this, and they've written a lot over the last few decades, and they've been involved in bitter arguments that, in some cases, are over data that we now know is probably not reliable. So yes, there is a tendency to do that. But then that's science, isn't it? Exactly. I think the mark of a good scientist is that, you know, if you find out that your original hypothesis or theory was a little bit wanting and new data comes along, that you have to then turn your back on that previous interpretation and, and look to a, to a different one. So um, let's say that some colleagues are better at that than others. <laughs> Tom Hyam from the University of Oxford and its Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit. Well, that's it for today's Planet Earth podcast from Wick and Fen. Do check out that Facebook page and you can also follow what's happening in the natural world via the Planet Earth online website or our Twitter feed.